Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I'm very excited about the founder that we have because he is also a foreigner, eh, just like myself, and I know how hard it is to to make it happen in the US coming from outside and and I think we're all going to learn a lot. So without further ado, Henrique Dubugras, welcome on board today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So I believe your first rodeo was an online gaming initiative. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, when, when I was 12, I got like obsessed about this game and, you know, it was like a paid game and I asked my parents and, you know, they want to pay it for me. So I figured out if I learned how to code, I could build, you know, an alternative version of the game. Let's call it like that. Um, and play it for free. That's kind of like how I started, you know, my whole thing. Wow. And at what age was this? Um, this was from 12 to 14. Wow. I mean, at that age, typically people are playing PlayStation and, and doing nothing. So it's well, saying... was definitely playing PlayStation as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. And, and, and I guess at this time, you know, you, you received something that is quite unusual for a 14-year-old, which is a notification of a patent infringement. So what was it like for you? Yeah, I got this, you know, legal notification saying that I was breaking some sort of patents. And if that if I didn't shut off, you know, they would sue me. Um, my mom got really upset about it. I didn't know what a patent was, honestly. And, you know, and I had to shut it down, you know, two years later. So at 14. Wow. Wow. So, so did you like, like right away shut it down or did you like yeah, right, away. right away got it got it got it and and with the money that you got from this i believe you started another another company which was in the education space so what was this about so what happened you know in the meantime was that um i, I was having this kind of like 14 year old crisis you know because i didn't know what to do with my life because for two years i just did this game and after a while, so I started doing some normal stuff. I started watching, you know, TV shows, found a girlfriend. So I started watching this TV show called Chuck. That was like a really good programmer and hacker. And, you know, he had gone to Stanford and it was like, hey, if I want to be like Chuck, you know, I had to go to Stanford. So, you know, but I didn't understand as a foreigner, you know, like yourself, like the whole U.S. application process is very complicated. 
So I, I found this other Brazilian guy that was graduating from Stanford and we made this deal and, you know, he was starting a ticketing company in Brazil, like Eventbrite in Brazil. And we made this deal in which, um, in, he would um, teach us. Uh, he would teach me the Stanford application process in exchange. I would code for him for free, and that's kind of how I got into this whole thing. And then I worked, you know, for him for a year. He raised a bunch of money, hired a bunch of senior engineers. But after a year, I was like, hey, maybe I can try to start my own company. So that's how I started. Um, I decided to start, you know, a company that teaches other students the U.S. application process, which I had just learned. So that was like, you know, my first. Um, company that let's say got incorporated. Um, and I did that in four, you know, for a whole year. Um, I got a bunch of users, but I never, you know, were, I were never able to monetize it. You know, no one was paying for what I was doing. So, you know, it failed miserably. Gotcha. Um, that's, you know, kind of how it went. And how many users were you able to get on, on this, for example? You got a lot. You got like 800,000. And, and you were 800,000. I mean, it's, it's not, not bad at all. So, what was it like? Like, were you guys like just trying to find a way to monetize and, and it was just not happening? Yeah, the problem was that, you know, students like didn't have the money or even the means to pay, right? They didn't have a credit card or a debit card or anything like that. Um, and then they had to ask their parents and their parents didn't believe that their kids could go to school in the U.S. So, you know, it was um, it, it was not like, you know, something someone with a buying power could buy. So like that right right and i'm and 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 then so when you did not when you were like frustrated to the point that you're like okay there's no way to do this at what point did you decide okay it's time to pull the plug um nine months then, i would say and was there like a process that you went through until you made the decision of pulling the plug or or kind of like make us be part of that final day where you said this is it so it was kind of like I didn't um, exactly pull the plug. What happened is that, you know, I went to this hackathon in Miami that was worth $50,000 because I needed money because, um, you know, rent was expensive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we built this dating app called Ask Me Out, which is like Tinder, but instead of geolocation, it was Facebook friends. Um, and we won the hackathon, came back to Brazil and tried to launch that. So it kind of like transitioned from one company to the other, I would call it like that, kind of like the same people. So, you know, and we kind of just let it online, but, you know, we fired, you know, didn't have anyone working on it anymore, just kind of like let it there. It wasn't, you know, a plug that I pulled. It was more, we transitioned to another idea. Okay, got it. And so I guess, I guess what were some of the learnings? Because I'm, I'm always a big believer that, you either succeed or you learn. And, and I guess in this case, I'm sure that you got big, big lessons. So what would those be? I think that a big lesson that we got was just aiming for a you know, bigger market. We got slightly traumatized with education. And, you know, if you look at the, the companies in the world, like no one has made too much money with education, you know, and especially like international education. Um, you have colleges like private colleges and stuff like that, but you know, it's, it's a really, really tough market. So I think, you know, we, we learned to go to kind of like larger markets. That was one. The second thing is, um, we got a little bit traumatized and obsessed about early monetization, which I don't know if it's a lesson that should be learned, but you know, we got, it was our own trauma that 
we decided that we only wanted to work on businesses where monetizing it was very simple. You know, very I, obvious. Um, makes sense. And then following this, you meet Pedro, Pedro Franceschi, and then you started to envision a, a new future, no? And it was uh, about payment. So I believe that um, you incubated this company called Pagarmi, and this is kind of like the, um, it could be viewed for the people that are listening as the Stripe equivalent. So so tell us about this. How did this yeah. come about? So, you know, I met Pedro, and Pedro was also, you know, an engineer during his teenage years, much better than I was, honestly. Um, and we met over Twitter, basically fighting um, text editors, Vim versus Emacs, or trying to know, you know, two popular text editors for coding. Um, and then it got too complicated to fight over 140 characters. We went to Skype, and over Skype, we decided, you know, we wanted to work together. And he had worked at a payments company during his teenage years. And I had, you know, this problem with, you know, this pay payments in this app because when I built Ask Me Out, um, I basically, you know, we basically had to implement payment methods and it was a really bad experience. So, you know, he had experience with payments. I had, you know, bad experience with payments. So we decided to start um, a payments company, Pagarme, which, you know, it's, um, I think, pretty accurate to say it was kind of like Stripe in Brazil. Um, you know, and that, that company turned out to work. So that was good. So <clears throat> really, really cool. So Brazil, I mean, were you guys both from Sao Paulo? Uh, yeah, we're both from Sao Paulo. Got it. Because Brazil, I mean, and, and correct me if maybe I'm mistaken, but I believe that Brazil perhaps is not as developed in, in the venture space, right? Especially when it comes to you know, venture capital firms and stuff like that, like, for example, the U.S. So how did you guys manage to raise the financing? Um, for uh, Pagarme? Correct. Um, so, you know, we, it was like, we met this investor when we won the hackathon in Miami. And like, it was kind of like presented during a venture capital conference. So, you know, there are a lot of investors there. And we met one of them through that and the other one, you know, kind of through Brazil connections. Um, and we got these two guys, to, you know, give us $150,000 each. Um, it wasn't a lot of, you know, we thought it was infinite amount of money at the time, honestly, but turned out it wasn't that much money, but, um, you know, it allowed us to get started. Um, I think that the thing there, like they invested because it was kind of like a big market and they thought we were smart, but we were really young. So a lot of people, you know, wouldn't even talk to us. Because how old were you guys at this point? We were 16. Wow. And for the company, how much did you end up raising in total for Pagarme? 300K is the only money we raised. Okay, got it. So, so then the company ends up uh, being acquired, right? You guys Correct. sold the company. Correct. Was there like a point where you said, okay, you know, it's time to, to, to move on or, or what happened there? Uh, what happened was, you know, the company is doing super well. It's growing a lot. Um, the thing that happened was that we got into Stanford uh, College. So we wanted, you know, to check that out a little bit. And we thought that Pagarmic could be a big business in Brazil, but it couldn't be something like massive. It couldn't be like, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, because it was just Brazil, right? And it was, we didn't have a lot of edge with international expansion and, and things like that. So we thought, you know, we, we sold it mostly because we wanted to come to the U.S. and build something here. Um, but the company was doing really, really well when we sold it. We were doing like around a billion and a half dollars in transaction volume. Got it. And how many employees did you guys have? Around 150. 
Got it. And the terms of the transaction are public? No. Okay, got it. So then you got accepted into Stanford, you and Pedro, and uh, so you moved there. And why did you decide to go to Stanford? Is it because of what you remember from watching that Chuck guy or, or why? I think it was like, you know, a few things. Uh, the very pragmatic one, it got us a visa, um, you know, so that helped. Uh, the second is like, you know, it, it, we wanted like a break from everything. And college seemed like, you know, a good break. It seemed fun. And we could learn a lot of stuff that we were always interested in and never had the time to learn. Um, so it was like, you know, intellectually stimulating. Uh, and, you know, it was a way to get into the U.S. And, you know, people here value brands a lot. Like Silicon Valley, you know, focus a lot on brands. And, you know, Stanford's a good brand. So we thought it could help in our, in our thing here, too. And it was also kind of like a little bit of a safety net of, you know, worst case scenario, I go back to school kind of thing, you know? Got it. Got it. I mean, at, at this point, you probably knew more than most of your professors. I mean, it's, it's really unbelievable because at the end, in school, they teach you how, how others have done it, especially on, on MBAs, um, rather than, you know, you doing it yourself, no? But you also went to Y Combinator. Um, you, you went to Y Combinator with an idea that you thought it would, it would make sense, but, but ended up being something else. So, so tell us about the experience with Y Combinator. And did you also do this in parallel with attending Stanford, or you, ha you had already finished Stanford? No, so we um we did in parallel of Stanford. We dropped out of Stanford after Y Combinator. The thing for with Y Combinator, we got into like you know when we got to Stanford, we were like we don't want to do payments anymore. We're tired of this, you know, dealing with these stupid banks and like this is really hard. Like let's fix something that's cutting out of technology. Like we want to do something really new and like really big and really cool. So you know we picked um, VR as kind of that, and you know VR is really hard. So we decided to, you know, but we got into YC with a VR company and that's, you know, what we got. And inside YC, we saw that like all these startups, they had raised a hundred, you know, a lot of money, sometimes millions of dollars and they couldn't get a corporate credit card. And we thought that was really dumb. Like, why can't you get a card if, you know, you, you raise that much money? So that's kind of how the idea of Rex came by. And why, why couldn't they get a, a credit card? Because they didn't have any financial history, right? They just had incorporated a company and uh, went to demo day and raised a bunch of money. Like they, for banks, you know, they don't know where that money comes from. Like, you know, they don't have any history. It's really hard. And sometimes, you know, they had to personally guarantee it. Some people didn't want to personally guarantee it. And some people just couldn't because let's say they're like us international. They didn't have a FICO score yet. Got it. Got it. So then obviously Brex is born. So, so walk us through the incubation process of Bricks because you were speaking with these founders they were telling you about these issues but what was the process until you said hey we're going to drop this idea we're going to go with this and this is how we're going to do it i think like we dropped the idea first and then we looked through a bunch of ideas and then we arrived at Brex. it wasn't that seamless i'd say um so you know we went through a bunch of ideas some and you know started outside of fintech and started going into fintech and it went ended up at payments you know but I think the best advice I got during that period was that, you know, a lot of people have a lot of ideas all the time. Why are you going to be like, why are you, why are you the founder to build this idea? If like some other founder had the same idea at the same time, why are you the founder that's going to build that better? And the fact that we already knew a lot about FinTech, we already knew a lot about a lot of things um allowed us to be you know that founder 
Got it. So Y Combinator, you attended that with Pedro, and at, and at that point where you decided to establish the Brex team, it was just the two of you guys, or what was the team? Just like? the two of us, um, and we decided to establish that Brex with NYC. Got it. So what was the business model that you guys come up with? Um, corporate credit cards for startups, right? So uh, we decided to underwrite you based on cash. So, you know, instead of looking at your financial history, we just looked if you had cash. If you had enough cash, you know, we let you um, get a card. If you didn't have enough cash, um, you know, you didn't get a card. Got it. And, and fintech, I mean, there's a lot of uh, regulation and, and all of that. I mean, you were talking earlier about dealing with banks, how, how painful that is. So, so how do you guys really like uh, manage, you know, and, and overcome, you know, whatever hurdles with dealing in, in fintech? I think, you know, one of the first things we did is like, we knew what to do. That was the first thing. Like, you know, when you're starting a company, sometimes like, you know, we're starting VR. We actually didn't know what to do. Do we need to get a factory? Do we get a prototype? How do we get a prototype? Who do we need to hire? Like with FinTech, you know, we knew what to do. So um, we, our first two hires, you know, three hires was like, you know, one generalist person, but then a CFO and a general counsel. Um, and that gave us a lot of credibility with the banks when we went and talked to them, right? So that was, you know, one point about it. And did you hire these people while you were in White Combinator or once you were finished with White Combinator? Once we were finished. So I would say, you know, we finished in March. This was between, you know, June and August or so. Got it. Got it. So what were some of the early days of Bricks? Um, you know, so early days, it was tough because, you know, um, we were working on, you know, getting the banks okay with us. And that took a long time. And, you know, at the same time, we were coding the platform. It just moved really slow. We got to launch Brex June last year. But, you know, for the longest time, we were in beta and, you know, it took a long time to get it set up. But when we got set up, it just started growing like crazy. So, you know, it's kind of this kind of product that it's different. And it's not that you need, you need to look for product market fit. The risk is different. The risk is, you know, you may not ever launch. A lot of, you know, credit card companies never launch. But if you do launch, you know, a lot of people want it. That was yeah. kind of like, you know, the challenges that we had. Now, I guess, I guess obviously at this point you were how old? Um, this uh, was, you know, this was 17, so it was 21 or 22. 21 or 22. I mean, obviously young. So in, when you're dealing with all these people in this, in this sector, especially like in, 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 in banking institutions, I mean, this is all like gray hair people. So, I mean, how, I, I guess at the beginning, like what was their, their phase when they saw someone that was so young? I mean, you know, um, in the beginning, people have some sort of prejudice, right? But then when you talk to them and, you know, they see that you know what you're doing and they see that, you know, you're just not a young kid, you know a lot about payments, a lot of details and stuff like that. Plus you recruited a great team. So, you know, our team, our CFO and our general counsel were actually very, very credible from the beginning, you know, it helped like people get over that and just focus on business. So for example, these key hires, I mean, those, those two first hires that you did, how, how were you able to find these people? Because I think that especially a general counsel on a business like this is a make it or break it. So how did you find this individual, for example? Um, uh, through the investor networks, we had raised, you know, some money at that point. And, you know, our investors introduced us to people who introduced us to people. Okay. Got it. So at what point do you realize, hey, you know, we got something here with Bricks. It's time to, to, to do some, some capital raising efforts. 
Um, it was, you know, why we had the idea. We raised money. We've closed around in the last day of Y Combinator. So out of Y Combinator, we already had $7.5 million. Got it. And, and was there a point for you with breaks where you said, I think we're into something, onto something with this? Man, honestly, like it was, you know, early on, the Series B happened. You know, I got that got us, you know, me pretty confident because, you know, hey, now we had raised $50 million and, you know, it will take a while for us to spend that. So, you know, at least we can keep working on this for a long time. Um, but then when we launched and I just saw the volume growing a lot every single month, that was, okay, now I'm pretty sure we're on to something. Really cool. So how much how much has the company raised so far that is publicly uh, reported? $220 million. $220 million. And I also heard that the, the, the valuation was reported to be over $1.1 billion, which is, you know, obviously very impressive. So... Normally in a fintech startup, what do you see investors that pay most attention to? Um, I think, you know, the first thing is, can you launch a good product that is actually differentiated? Because a lot of times, you know, companies launch products that are kind of the same as everybody else, right? The same as the banks. So I think, you know, the first, like our Series B was, Series A was, you know, hey, the founders, like, you know, basically we knew the, the investors, they knew us, they believed we could build something big. So that was the founder stage. Then right. Series B was, hey, they actually, you know, were able to get a card working and they about to launch. And, you know, a lot of companies died before that. So we had customers, it worked, it was doing well, people were liking it. And then Series C was, is basically, you know, hey, our customers are adopting this really fast and we we're having like really, really high growth. So. Got it. Got it. And, and for example, like the differentiator, I mean, especially at the beginning, it's a tough one because if we're thinking about the B round or the C round, you know, obviously you, were, you, you can showcase some of the numbers and the KPIs so that people can get really excited. But on the Series A, I mean, obviously, you know, changing a couple of features here and there, or, or you were talking about the founders, like what do you think in your case or in other cases that you've seen from the network of YC has really, you know, been the, the differentiator uh, on, on a fintech business? Um, I think, you know, people who actually worked in fintech, that helps a lot because you know kind of like how it works. You know what the differences are from a traditional startup. So, you know, for us, as having built Pagarma before, like, you know, we knew kind of like a lot about fintech already. And that was kind of the differentiator and like investors could tell that. Got it. And from that experience with Pagarme, what were some of the lessons, let's say if you had to point to three, that you were like, we are absolutely going to implement those three lessons into whatever we do with breaks? What, what were those lessons? Um, so, so the last, I think the first lesson was you have to have absolute control over the stack. If you depend on a bank to do something and, or they have, you know, to take their SLAs for you to do anything, you're going to have a bad product being that support, being that, you know, whatever it is, you need to have absolute control over everything. I think that's like lesson number one. Um, lesson number two is, you know, FinTech is a capital intensive business. Like, you know, in our last company, we were lucky that we were profitable soon, but, but I think if we had a lot more capital, we kind of have done a lot more. Like, you know, you have to raise a lot of money. Like that is very it's more important for FinTech than for, you know, a lot of other businesses. 
And and why do you think in fintech is so capital intensive versus other other sectors? Um, it's less about the capital that you spend. It's more about you need to partner with a lot of financial institutions, and if you have no money, they will you know not work with you. Wow, <laughs> that's interesting. That's yeah. interesting. So even if you have like something that is very innovative, if if you're not able to show some money in there or some really good backing, it's just tough to convince. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And and talking about that, I mean, your cap table is. It's pretty impressive. I mean, you guys have people like SB Angel, Global Founders Capital, DST Global, Rebit Capital on the institutional side. And then also I see angel investors like Peter Thiel or Max Lefchan. I mean, the guys that did PayPal. So how did you meet these people? Um, you know, I think that through, you know, for the first company, we met some of them. Through the other ones, you're being in Silicon Valley and you're a company. Like investors, they, you know, they want to meet you as much as, you know, you want to meet them. It's kind of like a you know, their job. Um, so, you know, initially, I think I would say it because when we were running Pagarame, we met a lot of investors for that business. And then we already knew them when we got here. And some of them we just met, you know, through net, the, our network here that we, you know, one investor introduced you to another one, one founder introduced you to an investor, stuff like that. Got it. So, so you, you would say that, like, what were some of those best introductions? I mean, you were pointing to founders. Were like introductions coming from founders? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think meeting uh, Yuri Milner and the DST guys was, you know, super important. And then I met the Green Oaks guys, like all of our invest YC we went through. So that was easy. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I think Peter Thiel was super helpful. Max Lepton was super, super helpful. Um, Max, I had a funny story how I met him, actually. Um, I met him because Pedro and I, we applied for a job at a firm. We didn't actually want the job. But we wanted to see how like the Silicon Valley recruiting processes worked. Right. In the end, you know, the final interview was kind of with Max, and we met him. And it was like, okay, you know, <laughs> really cool. And and by the way, like, what did you learn from that recruiting process? Um, that they so many companies they don't talk to freshman students because they're freshmen. So you know, a lot of companies just refuse us from the top. Right. So a lot of people are going to obviously miss out on, on talented folks like you and Pedro. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I do agree with that. You know, I think that obviously things are changing now and they're more about what you're capable of more than anything. So your guys' resume before this was impressive regardless. So so let me ask you this, Enrique, like what was the um, like being a foreigner? I mean, I've done the fundraising too. What, what, I mean, it was painful. So I guess like for you guys also be being foreigners, like what kind of hurdles did you encounter that uh, that you were like, man, if if I was if I was a native guy or a local here from the area, probably I would not be dealing with this. I think you know a lot of people like you know if you went to college with people and then those people go to work in VC or you know you have friends like you already have a network. We had some network, but you know all our network was Latin, so you know. Um, by the way, we knew Ribbit because Rib Mickey, you know, the founder is Venezuela and you know yeah. he Brazil. Um, so we kind of used that, but you know, that definitely was a thing, but it, you know, we didn't have a lot of problems because, you know, we, we speak good English and we know the dialect. We went to Stanford, but like a lot of my friends that are foreigners, just like the English is like such a big thing, you know, if they can articulate really well in English, um, it's just something that, you know, it seems simple and, you know, dumb, but a lot of my really, really talented Brazilian friends sometimes come here and can't raise money. And that's, you know, a big problem. Yeah. I mean, obviously the, um, 
having a Y Combinator or Stanford, it, it definitely helps. Absolutely. And I'm sure that, that, that you say uh, you, you must get like a lot of friends from, from back home that are trying to do it. And, and eventually they have to come to the U.S. because, uh, for example, when I'm from, I'm from Spain, there is, the, the funds are not big enough. So eventually the company needs to come to the U.S. to continue growing. And it's just different dynamics. So for the people that are coming here, I mean, what kind of advice do you give them, like those, those friends of yours? Um, my advice is, you know, while you're not raising, invest in, you know, getting better at English. Or, you know, also hire, you know, an American or someone, you know, of that background that can help you with the pitch and can help you with all of it, you know. So um, so there's someone that, you know, can can help that because a lot of times VCs have this proxy of like, hey, if you don't have a clear vision and a clear strategy, you know, it's harder to articulate that to your team and to investors and to, you know, partners. But sometimes you do have that. You just don't articulate it well in English. Right. So that's one tip. Yeah. The other tip I have is try to find all the other people from the same country as you. So, or, or, you know, similar countries. So like, you know, when we first got here, we just, you know, got introduced to Brazilians and then Brazilians introduced us to a lot of people. So we just came here, you know, while we were running Pagarma and we just cold emailed a lot of Brazilians and like, okay, Brazilians, that's a good thing. Um, so, you know, and then those Brazilians introduced to a lot of good people and, you know, we started building our network from that. So, you know, you're from Spain, you can email all the Spanish people. There's a higher chance, you know, some of those people respond. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely a good tip there. And for example, like as you were doing your different uh, rounds of financing, you know, you you obviously did your A, then you did your B. I mean, you're you're getting much better at really uh, interfacing and and having exchanges with investors. So, so now, for example, like on your most recent round, for example, like how are you able to know, like, hey, this is an investor that I want, and and if they don't check those marks, there's no way I want them in my team. So, what would be those marks for you? Basically, you know, it's more about meeting investors beforehand. So all the investors we raised, we knew them for like, you know, um, for six months plus. And we had build, building relationships with them for a while. And I think, you know, we wanted to see that during that time, even if we're investing, have them be, been helpful or not, you know. So that is, you know, the biggest thing for us is like how helpful an investor is. We want people who have been helpful, um, you know, from, from day one, even before they were investors. Yeah. And, and being helpful, like, what do you think makes the best and most helpful investor? What, who, who, who are they? What do they do? Honestly, there's no such thing. Like, uh, there's people who help in different areas. Some people are really good at giving you really, really solid introductions to really important people. Some people are good, you know, in operations and basically, you know, just, um, taught, like helping you through the day-to-day operational problems. Some people are really good industry experts. So, you know, um, you know, they're in the industry, uh, they know a lot about FinTech and payments and people can help you in multiple ways. You just need a broad base of them. Got it. And, and I understand that you guys have a, almost double your employees in the, in the last year. Is that right? Yes. That's pretty cool. So how do you scale the team? And at the same time, you're able to embrace culture. Um, I think that, you know, the, the important thing is the actions. So like, you know, when you hire someone and you fire someone and you promote someone, you just make sure that people know why that's happening and what are the culture points, you know, that matter. So one thing we do is that, you know, every week we have a culture point 
that is like someone that did something that we thought was very cultural, uh, culturally aligned. And we, yeah. you know, tell that to people every week in front of the entire company. Got it. Because how many employees do you have now? Um, we have 115. Wow. Really cool. Really cool. And I'm sure that there's been a lot of moments where you needed kind of like to step back and, and kind of like learn a, about different, maybe like aspects of the business before making an informed decision. So, so for you, what have been typically those go-to resources that you knew they were not going to let you down? I don't understand the question, sorry. So for example, like when you had to make certain key decisions on the business, let's mm -hmm. say like at a strategic level, was that like the board members that you had that you would go to? In addition to that, were there like any other resources that you would, you know, take a look at before making a decision or advisors or how would you go about that? I think that the way that we think about it um, is, you know, depending on what kind of strategic decision, we have certain, you know, investors that are better at discussing them with us. Um, so, you know, that's kind of like more what we did. There's no like one stop shop, I think, for, you know, advice, I would say. Got it. And, and for example, in your, in your experience, what do you think makes, um, uh, a board member effective? I think, you know, the most important thing is being an advice person instead of a command person. So, you know, at the end of the day, we want board members that they give you, hey, this is my view, but I'll support you in whatever you decide to do because you're running the company. I think the worst kind of board members are those that want to impose their views to you all the time. Got it. Got it. And typically when you run those, say, uh, those board meetings, like how do you how do you make those happen so that they are as productive as possible? I mean, what have you learned? I think that the most important thing is like, you know, telling the board what is a update and, you know, hey, just, you know, move forward with it. And what is something you actually want to discuss and go deep into? Because otherwise in the board meeting, you know, you might go in deep into the things that the investors are most interested about and not what you were most interested about getting out of the board meeting. Got it. Got it. And, you know, it was, it's really interesting that we're talking about this because yesterday I was speaking with a founder that was a little bit uh, not familiar with the, with the board number in terms of members. So how, for example, in your case, has the number of board members uh, matured or increased as the company was raising more financing? Um, we added one board member for the series um a two board members for this series b and then we added a two board observers for the series c got it and do you think in your in your experience i mean from what you've seen as well a board observer typically has the same level of influence than a let's say a, a normal board member in our experience yes um but i don't know if that's true for every company Right. Yeah, because I've heard a lot of people say that at the end of the day, look, they may not be voting, but they are also a part of the calls and they can still speak with people. They're educated enough. Yeah, that's been more of our experience. Got it. Cool. So there is a question here, Enrique, that I always ask the guests that we have uh, on the show. And that is, if you could go to the past and give yourself advice before launching a business, what would that be? One piece of advice. Do whatever it takes to get the best people 
don't let good people pass because of comp or, you know, anything. Just be flexible and like, get the best people in. Really cool. Really cool. Enrique, so what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Um, just reach out to Brex and, you know, someone will, if it makes sense for us to meet or talk about it, um, they'll, you know, they'll get it done. Fantastic. Well, Enrique, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.